The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Today's episode is sponsored by Bright Peak Financial, a non-for-profit membership organization providing Christians with the right products, tools, and resources to gain financial strength. Go to brightpeakfinancial.com to create your financial success story. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery. Where spirituality and recovery meet with Reverend Anna Schaus, PhD. Now, here's your host, Reverend Anna Schaus. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet, where we support your spiritual growth in recovery. My name is Anna Schaus, and I'm your host, and I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I'm very glad that you're listening, and thank you also for liking the Spirit of Recovery page on Facebook, and thanks for sending your emails and letting me know how it's going for you on your spirituality and recovery walk. And um, I want to thank you also for letting your friends and the people in your recovery community, your unity community, and your other spiritual communities know about us here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. It's great to be broadcasting on the topic of spirituality and recovery, and it's great to know that the guests that I'm bringing are touching your heart and opening your mind to some new ideas and some new depths and breadth of what recovery can really be all about for you. Every week we talk about topics that are important to the recovery community with guests who are down to earth, knowledgeable, and innovative. People who are either in recovery themselves or who are working with or writing for recovering people or sometimes, a lot of times, all the above. And my guests are always bringing you practical information that you can use and lively discussions that get you thinking. You know that you can listen to Spirit of Recovery in a variety of ways. Um, that you can listen live, uh, obviously via your computer, via your smart device. You can also go to Stitcher.com and download their app and search for Spirit of Recovery. You can also now listen on an Alexa, A-L-E-X-A, enabled device such as Amazon Echo. And Alexa is a hands-free voice-controlled app from Amazon, and it allows you to play music, get your questions answered, and receive updates and listen to Unity Online Radio. So if you have an Alexa-enabled device, just ask Alexa, Alexa to play Unity Online Radio, radio on TuneIn. Also, of course, you can listen on demand. we got lots of great archived programs, great ones. Just go to unityonlineradio.org slash program slash spirit of recovery, and you will find several years' worth of amazing guests with all kinds of information that can deepen your recovery. 
I want you to know that Spirit of Recovery is a welcoming place. And so if you're a person that's in recovery from any kind of an addiction, you're welcome. If you're a person that's a family member or friend of somebody that's got the disease of addiction, you're welcome. And hopefully, as a family member, you either are or will investigate your own recovery as a family member because there are indeed 12-step programs and other resources for family members and friends to recover uh, because addiction is a family disease. So also, maybe you're just interested in the process of recovery. You want to know what it's about. You're welcome. We're glad you're here. Everybody's welcome. You're welcome to um, call in or write in, email in a question or a comment for my guests today if you want to. And uh, just know that you're welcome here. We're glad you're here. Again, my name is Anna Schaus, and I'm your Spirit of Recovery host. I'm a unity minister and also an addictions counselor. I'm also a person who has in my own circle of love and friendship many people that have the disease of an addiction. And so 35 years ago, those relationships got me started on an active path of personal growth and spiritual development. And ever since that time, my walk has been an integration of unity and recovery principles. And I'm grateful because it keeps transforming my life, keeps me growing and changing in deeper ways. So I'm delighted to have the opportunity to share with you these ideas about spirituality and recovery. I want you to know also that if you would like to support UnityOnlineRadio.org, which is a non-profit endeavor, you can do that. You can text Unity Radio to 72727 from your smartphone, and you can make a contribution of your finances. And you can do that as a one-time gift or a recurring gift. So uh, that's a possibility for you, an opportunity, if you would like to do that. Today, our topic is It Takes a Village, How Connection Supports Long-Term Recovery. And my uh, guest today is David Hauk. He is the Director of Programs at Austin Recovery. He is a licensed social worker and also a licensed chemical dependency counselor. David has been in a clinician in the recovery field for 25 years in a variety of positions. He has uh, been a direct uh, provider as a clinician, directly working with clients for uh, many, many years, both within treatment and as follow-up and support after treatment. He has been in administration, developing programs, and uh, working with people. He's just done a lot in this field and done a lot of good. And he's going to be uh, sharing with us today how his uh, connections uh, that with self, with spiritual values, and with other people in the context of community, and community, you know, can mean a lot of different things, but how that creates the context for long-term recovery. Because, you know, what we know is that uh, in recovery, we alone can do it, but we cannot do it alone. And um, so David's going to be talking to us about how long-term recovery doesn't happen in a vacuum, that uh, when individuals make connections with themselves, with their higher spiritual values, as they understand them, making connections with other recovering people and connecting with healthy lifestyle actions, then uh, when they do that in a larger affirmative recovery affirmative environment, um, it's easier to sustain long-term recovery. And that's, you know, that's a challenge. It's something to uh, strive for, and it's certainly, certainly possible. So... Um, you know, communities that understand what addiction is and that have supportive norms around uh, recovery, affirmative uh, behaviors and so forth really do a lot to help people. So David is also a person who is in long-term recovery himself, and he'll share some about that with us. And he is very much dedicated to helping clients embrace the wealth of experience Um in recovery that is so rich and so available. And he believes that 100% of people who seek treatment can stay sober. He doesn't believe that relapse is a requirement. We know it happens sometimes. And maybe it's not a requirement. So David's going to be sharing with us today. And you can learn more about him and his work at austinrecovery.org. And that's Austin, Texas, austinrecovery.org. So David, thanks for being my guest today. Well, thank you. Appreciate the invitation. You're welcome. So, David, I met you um, 
uh, I don't know, probably over a month ago now at uh, a mm-hmm. seminar that you were presenting about relapse prevention there at Austin Recovery. And uh, I was just really touched by the things that you had to share, both by your wealth of experience um, as a clinician and also the wealth of experience that you have um, in your own life. And, oh, and you were able much. to, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, and it, you know, you could tell that uh, you know what you're talking about. So, so thank you. Yeah. Well, I've been blessed. That's uh, the short version. Yeah. Tell us about that. How have you been blessed with this with this experience of recovery? Well, um, it's hard to do a short version, but um, my sobriety date is September sixteenth of nineteen eighty nine. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was not the beginning of my treatment process or anything. Um, I. Um, actually went to treatment three different times before that, um, starting when I was a teenager. And um, my parents both died when I was a teenager. My mom when I was 15, my dad when I was 13. And that was also when I first discovered marijuana. Um, And lots of stuff happened after that. But um, in 1989, I found myself hitting bottom. I had a really bad day. I had gotten fired from a job, evicted from an apartment, and arrested all in one day. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Only in recovery can we laugh about such things. (laughs) I know. Isn't it amazing? Um, But the Uh result of that was I ended up at the hospital in the emergency room, Mm -hmm. and a social worker asked me a very simple question. All she asked was, would you like to try something different? And I really thought I had tried everything different that there was out there. Um, And when she put that in such a simplistic term, I thought, well, maybe there's something I haven't tried yet. And that's what opened me up to um, treatment in a different way, to 12-step recovery, um, all of the things that have led me to uh, being able to give back now Mm -hmm. and this new life that I've enjoyed. What was the essence of of what what you did that was different than what you had done before? Um, I think one essence was um, connecting with people in twelve step meetings. Um, I, after having done treatment in the past, before this, you know, we did psychology and we got into my grief issues, and all of that was very good. I learned a lot from that, but it it did not really connect me with other people. And when I found that connection through a sponsor, I realized that I wasn't alone in the struggle. And that um, gave me a lot of strength that I hadn't really felt before. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I remember walking into a meeting once, and one of the old-timers looked at me and said, David, you're smiling. And there was no particular reason I was smiling. I was just honestly having a good day. And it had been a long time since I had just had a good day for no particular reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're saying that, this may sound a little far afield, but it, it isn't. That um, I just heard on the on a program on, on NPR on the radio last evening when I was driving home about um, a program that the police in Denmark have to, to do their best to uh, help young people uh, in Denmark who are trying, who are getting recruited by ISIS and other groups like that, terrorist groups, to try to help them, you know, not get recruited. They're reaching out to them in positive ways, and 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 really trying to help them connect. And at the end of the program, the the police officer that they were interviewing says, you know, he said these kids just want to belong. He said that's all they want is they want to be long. And I was so moved. Um, and that, you know, again, some of them go ahead and join the terrorist groups anyway, but a lot of them is working because the police in a very constructive way are saying, look, you do belong. You're part of this community here and doing a lot of different things, you know, to, to get them connected. And it reminds me of that. What what's the what's the power of belonging? Why is that so important? Well it's one of the basic human needs. I mean throughout society Throughout time, for us, um, being a part of a human community is essential. Well, first for survival, um, but even more so, it 
It gives us social connection. It validates who we are as a person, that we're likable because other people around like us. Um, there's you know, an opportunity to ask for help um, and to receive that help and give help to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that is just um, required, and that's where we draw our greatest strength mm-hmm. in those numbers in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I know that, uh, what do you see, uh, you talk, shared with us some about your own personal experience in, in making those connections. What do you see with the people that you you work with? And again, you've been in the field now for 25 years and in a variety of of roles, a lot of direct service with clients, a lot of, you know, creating programs and administrating. What do you see for people in, in that regard of community and connection and what works? What helps them? Well, um, being able to develop some sort of hope um, is essential. Um, so many people, well, let me back up just a little bit. And, and sure. just a bottom line about addiction as a whole. Mm-hmm. For the addict, their drug of choice, and I use addict, alcoholic interchangeably because for me, alcohol is just as much of a drug as cocaine or K2 or anything else. Um, they see their drug as a solution to life, whereas their family members and the rest of society see it as a problem. Mm-hmm. And they internalize all of the shame, the guilt, the compromise of their own morals. Um, that all becomes internalized and reduces their self-esteem, reduces their self-worth. And it's it's hard to get out of that to think that there really is another way. Mm-hmm. You know, you... You talk to an addict and you tell them that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and their first thought is it's a freight train coming at me. Mm -hmm. They need to change that mindset to a more positive one that there's hope that I really can live a different life, that uh, I can cope with the struggles that everybody else deals with out there. Mm -hmm. Um, So that foundation of, you know, there's another solution other than the drugs that I've been using for all these years is key and that I deserve that. And a lot of people don't believe that they deserve it. Now, a lot of that comes from the abuse that they suffered, the number of people um, who seek treatment who have been abused as children is just astronomical. Um, So many of them have turned to drugs to cope with that chaos of abuse and PTSD. Um, I see that a lot of people who isolate more when they're drinking, people who drink alone, tend to have a harder time getting and staying sober because they have social anxiety. They have other problems that prevent them from connecting. So overcoming that is a key thing to even being able to access the support somebody needs to be sober. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes... Um, what. What is the the connection, and again, I know there are different opinions about this, but uh, what's the connection, do you think, between trauma, somebody being traumatized, having PTSD, either because of childhood abuse or or adult issues that people have, you know, have been subjected to violence in a variety of ways or, or been in combat or whatever. What's the connection, do you think, what do you see between that and and addiction and recovery? Well, um, these people have been subjected to things that the brain can't handle. And we all have certain denial mechanisms where we can suppress certain emotions, we can suppress reactions to a certain point. But at some point, you know, uh, people lose it and they look for outside resources to fix how they're feeling and to cope with that, which is intolerable. Um, Drugs and alcohol provide a quick, instant, easily accessed process to cope with those. And, you know, even without the genetic predisposition involved, because, you know, we know that there's a genetic predisposition, we also know that people can use often enough um, for long enough that they create that same addictive process even if they had not had the genetic predisposition ahead of time. So it may have started out as just coping with the intolerable and then it becomes um, a self-perpetuating disease in and of itself. Mm -hmm. 
Now, with recovery, the a lot of people will, you know, they'll deal with the drugs and alcohol, but they don't necessarily want to get deeper into the trauma. And if they don't deal with that, that stuff comes back up eventually. And since the only thing they knew that worked in the past was the drugs and alcohol, they have, you know, an internal push to go back towards that. Mm-hmm. So that can, I know some people see, see that, the undealt with trauma as a relapse trigger, as they mm-hmm. say. T- tell us about that or what do you, how do you see that? Well, um, triggers um, is, is kind of misinterpreted sometimes. Um, there are things that predispose us to seeking out old ways of coping with life. Um, Terence Gorski uses the term uh, stuck points, whereas the, anything at all that interferes with me growing in recovery has the potential to make me stuck, and then once I'm stuck, I revert to my old habits. Um, recovery has been described like being on an down escalator trying to go up. Mm-hmm. If you don't keep stepping and keep working, you're going to end up back at the bottom where you were. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of these people will, you know, out of fear of, you know, I don't know if I'm capable of dealing with these emotional problems. Um, I don't know if I have the support or what people are going to think about me if I get honest about this. Because victims have a lot of self-blame that they have to get past in that as well. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that answered your question. I'll yeah, no, no, there, it but. did. No, it did. And let me ask you about this. I know that one uh, approach and that a lot of uh, clinicians now are real aware of, and I believe that you work with this too, is 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 the understanding dual diagnosis or that when people might have, um, in addition to addiction, that they might have other uh, behavioral health issues. One of them might be trauma. It might be other things like depression or anxiety. How do you see that and how do you work with that in, in supporting a person in recovery and making those connections? Well, it's very important to do a thorough assessment, first of all, um, to have nursing staff, counseling staff, medical staff, um, everyone look at the client from as many different angles as we can so that we can get a thorough picture. You know, of course, involve family and get history, and that can lead us to identifying additional problems. Um, Dual diagnosis, um, again, doesn't have to prevent someone from getting sober, but it does need to be addressed because if you leave the underlying depression untreated, that will interfere with their ability to benefit from recovery. They won't be able to make those connections with people. And it's even harder to find any kind of hope um, for life in general when you're depressed. And that's a physical change. It's not just you know the blues or just thinking that you're down, but there's an actual... Um, neurological change in the body that is depression. And if you don't deal with both, then neither one can be adequately resolved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's a way to really help people get get into that recovery process and get past some of the things that would, would be a barrier to them. Absolutely. Um, I mean, if, if 12 steps alone was enough, we wouldn't need treatment centers at all. Um, you know, I would love to work myself out of business one day, mm-hmm. but I don't really see that happening. Um, mm-hmm. That would be a great thing. Um, but the therapy and the additional work that people do through treatment programs, through seeing individual therapists, through recovery coaches, allows them to identify the roadblocks um, that are keeping them from being successful in those, um, you know, peer support communities uh, like 12-step programs. Right. And certainly, uh, as anyone who has read the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, knows it in no way prohibits getting additional help. In fact, it encourages it in several different Absolutely. places. Absolutely. And sometimes people don't know that, but it's true, and it's important, worth, it, worth saying, for sure. It, it is, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so yep. many people um, are afraid to do that extra step, or the resources aren't there. Um, because there is an expense, and even with the Affordable Care Act, we still have people who don't have access to therapy. Um, so it's, it is a, definitely a needed service in our communities. 
Right. You know, there's a, a lot about um, now in the re- what some people call the recovery advocacy movement, which is, you know, really a, a loose a loose knit sort of movement it's not like one one there's not like a recovery advocacy office i don't think anywhere but but you know people that are doing this that are really focusing on uh community-based experiences and um austin recovery is a nonprofit that's been in this in the austin texas community for many many years and um has has done a lot just to be in the community and is, is set up, I think, for people to access it pretty easily. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Yeah. It is. Um, Austin Recovery has been here for 50 years, actually, 1967. So we're about to have our 50th anniversary. Uh-huh. And we have funding available um, for homeless people, for indigent folks. Um, we you know, accept different types of funding um, specifically so we can be part of a community and fill that gap of those who don't have resources that still need help. Right. And I don't know what's what the statistics are, and this may not, you may not know any statistics on this, but I'm hoping that in most communities or at least larger communities around the country that these types of uh services are available as you say there's still not enough and there's still people that need access to treatment that don't have it but mm-hmm. is but i mean i guess and there are there community-based services right around the country or not what do you think there are yeah um there's not enough um but there are community-based services all over mm-hmm. um there's several grants out there and there's several charitable um foundations that assist people with accessing treatment um, there was one statistic I saw that was published by SAMHSA, uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration of the government, um, that in one year um, they were looking at waiting lists of treatment centers that received funding from them. Mm-hmm. And the result was that there were 200,000 people who had become part of waiting lists to get into treatment who were not able to access treatment during that year. Wow. Hmm. What's the solution, do you think, so that to help those people access treatment? Or what, what direction do we need well, to head? Without being too political, um, and this is one reason I, I went back and got my master's in social work, just to look at the, the whole community aspect of it. Um, advocating with our congressmen, with our congresswomen, with the people who represent us, that we feel public health, specifically addiction recovery, is something that requires funding that's, you know, right now there's a lot of press about the opiate, you know, epidemic, they're calling Mm -hmm. it, um, celebrities dying recently and so forth. Um, And that needs to be moved into a more community-based effort that would allow for public funding um, for assistance for people who need it. Um, I talked to one of our state congressmen once, and he you know, asked me if he could respond to my question off the record. Um, I asked him, why is there not more funding for addiction treatment? And his answer was, because addicts don't vote. Huh. And, hmm. and he was just being frank with me. Um, right. If, mm-hmm. if we are not you know, being vocal about the fact that recovery is possible, that there is definitely a need, then people aren't going to pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. And I know that's one of the big moves of the, again, this loosely knit conglomeration of, of people that call the recovery advocacy movement are saying, au contraire, addicts do vote. <laughs> yes. And, and yes. mobilizing people to get out there and vote and, and do what you're saying is to, to, be, to be vocal and not it hide. Uh-huh. Yes. It's amazing. I mean, we elect these folks, and they work for us, yet we're intimidated to go talk to them. Uh-huh. And that's all it really takes is one person telling their story to another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, some people in recovery get concerned about the anonymity thing, that, you know, if I say I'm in recovery, maybe I'm breaking a tradition somehow, but you don't have to say you're a member of a certain fellowship. You just say, you know, I'm in recovery, and my life is better as a result. And now I'm a tax-paying voter. 
Um, and you should pay attention to my needs and the needs of people in my community. That's right. It's time for our break. David, thank you so much. My guest is uh, David Halk. We're talking today about It Takes a Village, How Connection Supports Long-Term Recovery. And stay with us. We'll be right back here on Spirit of Recovery. As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach to the world, we count on the support of listeners like you. Please make your donation today. Go to www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. What does simple living sound like to you? Is it a quiet moment on your front porch? A cold beverage after a long day? Or maybe spending quality time with your family. Whatever it is, simple living is a powerful act of joy, abundance, and refreshment. Want to simplify your life? Join the Simple Living Challenge by Bright Peak Financial. It's an inspiring and easy 14-day challenge to help you cut down on life's clutter to lead a simpler, more balanced life. Go to simplelivingchallenge.com to sign up. If you've ever wondered how a specific Bible verse might be interpreted metaphysically, then Interpret This is for you. In Interpret This, Unity Minister Rev. Ed Townley answers your questions about the Bible and how to apply its verses to your life with passion, depth, and spiritual insight. To submit a question or to enjoy any of his numerous metaphysical interpretations, visit unity.org and click on the Interpret This box. You know the saying, a good deed is its own reward? Well, moving toward a plant-based diet and vegan lifestyle is one kind and compassionate act that isn't just its own reward. It will also reward you with vibrant health, boundless energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, and according to Yogi's and Unity's co-founder Charles Fillmore, even give a boost to your spiritual life. On Main Street Vegan, the radio program named for the popular book, Victoria Moran will make your move in a vegan direction easy, fun, affordable, and delicious. With enticing topics and entertaining guests every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. listening to Spirit of Recovery with Reverend Anna Schaus and her guest. If you have a question or comment or experience with today's topic that you'd like to share, call us now at 888-55-UNITY. That's 888-558-6489. Call now or email us at spiritofrecovery at unityonlineradio.org. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. If you're just joining us, my name is Anna Schaus, and I'm your Spirit of Recovery host. And our topic today is It Takes a Village, How Connection Supports Long-Term Recovery. And with my guest, David Halk, who is a licensed social worker and a licensed chemical dependency counselor, and he's the director of programs at Austin Recovery. We are talking about how it is that recovery really takes place in the context of connection, and that can mean a lot of things. It means connection with yourself, with your higher power, with your uh, friends and family, with your recovery support community, and with the larger community, and connecting really with uh, lawmakers who can uh, make those laws and set those norms that help a community be recovery affirmative, because when we create a refer a com- a recovery affirmative context um, in our world, boy, it really makes a huge difference for people's ability to stay in long-term recovery. And um, so my 
uh, guest David and I are talking about that. David has 25 years experience as a clinician in a variety of uh, aspects in terms of direct service to clients, program development, administration, follow-up after people are completed uh, with treatment and so forth. So he's got a lot of rich experience as a as a clinician and a professional in the recovery field. And also, um, David is himself a person in long-term recovery. So all of that combined, um, you know, really makes him somebody that knows what he is talking about and is very helpful. So you can learn more about his work at austinrecovery.org, which is a community-based treatment program here in Austin, Texas, where I live. And they do a lot of great work. They've been around, as David shared with us, for coming close to 50 years. And that, i got to tell you, that makes a big difference. So before I get back to my conversation with David, I would uh, like to invite you to join me for the Serenity Minute which is an opportunity to relax, to take a brief moment to open your heart and mind and make that conscious connection with your higher power. So I invite you to relax, to feel that peaceful presence of your higher power within you and around you. Allow yourself to relax from the crown of your head and feel that relaxation as it moves all the way through your body temple, through your legs and feet, your arms and hands, through the trunk of your body. And share with me this constructive idea. I belong. I am a part of a healthy community. I belong. I am a part of a healthy community. And now we take just a moment in the quiet. Thank you, friends, for joining me in the Serenity Minute, and I trust that that was an opportunity for you to feel that connection and feel that belonging that is right there, that is who you really are. And so now I'm back to my conversation with my guest, David Halk, again, a licensed master social worker, a licensed chemical dependency counselor, and the director of programs at Austin Recovery, and you can look up about more about that at austinrecovery.org. So, uh, David, before the break here, we were talking about the importance of advocacy with lawmakers. That's, a, it's not completely new. I mean, there's certainly all through the history of, um, recovery in this United States, there have been different times where people in recovery have advocated. Bill Wilson, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, even testified before the United States Congress about the need for um, good services and, and appropriate um, support for, and funding for recovery services. Marty Mann, who's um, started one of the great uh, agencies that supports recovery in this country back Way back in the day, she did. So there's been different times where it has been on the horizon, and then it seems like it kind of fades out, and then it comes back. Um, how do you see it? What's going on now with recovery advocacy? Well, right now there's um, definitely a stronger movement. Um, there's an organization called Faces and Voices of Recovery um, that is a very good place to look up um, what's going on at their website, Faces and Voices of Recovery. Um, and there are various rallies around the country. Um, there's opportunities and guidance on advocacy available on their website. And uh, we're coming up to Recovery Month. Um, September is officially um, National Recovery Month. And so there'll be lots of activities in many different communities uh, to support recovery. Um, I know here in Austin, in Kerrville, there's uh, concerts going on in, you know, in the park, free concerts and food for people to come out and celebrate that life can be different. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. And the big Texas rally is going to come up sometime in September. I don't remember the date, but um, mm-hmm. the big rally for recovery, and it's part of that whole whole network 
of what's happening. So, you know, beforehand, too, before the break, you were talking about sometimes people are concerned that if if they go to these kinds of events, you know, that are outside of maybe their own uh, support group or if they advocate with lawmakers for better funding and so forth for access to treatment, that they're breaking their anonymity. But that's not true. And we talked about that a little bit. So can you share some more about your view of that, about anonymity is an important principle. I abide by it here on mm-hmm. on Spirit mm-hmm. of Recovery. I believe in it. It's an important tradition. Can you share more about what you think it means and how it relates to advocacy and, and participation in, in things like these public events? Well, um, there's a definite need for it because there's so much shame and stigma around being an addict or an alcoholic. Um, you see a lot of stuff in the press these days and, um, you know, that famous people are coming up, that they're in recovery, but you also see a lot of the negative stuff. So if you, you know, look at um, a Charlie Sheen or a Lindsay Lohan, you know, people get the wrong idea about what recovery is. Mm-hmm. And they don't, they don't get the idea that it really is possible that people's lives do change. Um, there's a statistic out that there's more than 23 million Americans who are in long-term recovery right now. And the anonymity um, just allows people to seek out that help without the fear of the stigma or being judged. And if you can remove that fear or any other fears that would prevent people from connecting with the support they need, um, it's an important step in the right direction. Um, now, as far as the traditions are concerned, within 12-step programs, you know, there's something like 300 different 12-step programs out there. Um, everything from you know, the first one, Alcoholics Anonymous, through Emotions Anonymous. Um, there's church-based programs. There's you know, Nicotine Anonymous for people quitting smoking. There's all kinds of things. Um, and you don't have to identify yourself as a member of one of those groups. The traditions actually say we don't talk about being a member, but we can talk about the benefits to our lives that resulted from participating in those programs. Mm-hmm. So I don't, um, and I've talked with several other people in the program as well, that saying I've benefited from recovery, um, that my life is better now, is not breaking any of those traditions. Right, that's right, mm-hmm. yeah. It's just about not identifying that I am a member of whatever. But yes. yes, but you can certainly find and helpful if one's ready for, or if one wants to, chooses, it's a choice to say I'm a person in recovery. Absolutely. So, yeah. So tell us about, you know, one thing you mentioned earlier, David, was about the family and about how it's helpful to people um, if, they, if their family is involved somehow in the recovery process. Why is that? And how can families get involved in the recovery process? Well, the the families go through changes as the addiction gets worse, just like the addicts do. Um, families become enablers. They, um, you know, at first they turn the other way. They turn the other cheek, if you will. Um, it's the pink elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about, but it affects everyone. Um, there are there's all kinds of research about adult children of alcoholics and how their lives change because of the way they were raised. Um, If a family member doesn't get help themselves, then they're going to be suffering from the chaos that led to, you know, the problems that the addict finally got into treatment for. Um, And there's also a disconnect that happens. If the addict or alcoholic is growing spiritually and the family members stay stuck where they were, they're not on the same plane anymore. Um, They should both be growing. If the whole family is growing and expanding their possibilities and hope, then they can do that together and support each other. Mm -hmm. I actually had a husband of a patient say to her once that he liked her better drunk. Mm -hmm. And that was just devastating for her. She was working so hard to change her life and to be a better mom and a better wife, it came back to whether we like it or not, we do have a certain investment in the chaos that's around us. Um, In this gentleman's case, 
he got lots of sympathy from friends and family and neighbors. Oh, poor Joe. His wife is drunk, and he's got to take care of the kids, and he's got to pay all the bills, and you know all that kind of stuff. And he had control in the house because she was drunk and not paying attention to these things. And suddenly, she's healthy and wants to get back and participating, and all of that sympathy and stuff that he's been enjoying um, is probably not the best word for it, but well, it kind of is. So, you know, suddenly that's threatened and, you know, people want to hold on to what they're familiar with, even if it is dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and I yeah. do laugh when I say that about the enjoying because I, I don't believe it. Ultimately, people enjoy it. But as you say, it's comfortable. Yeah. And so at that, in that level, there's some kind of... Uh, maybe a false bottom enjoyment, but it's still kind of a little bit of like, yeah, this is comfortable for me. I know how to deal with this. I don't know how to deal with the other stuff. That's right. Uh, the fear of the unknown is a powerful force. I don't know what it's going to be like if we both get healthy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that can stop us from going that direction. Right. For sure. You know, and that really brings to mind for me spirituality. And uh, I know that your spirituality is important to you. And um, how do you see that? And, and it's certainly a, a connection. I mean, we connect with, a, with, with ourselves and with our higher power. That's, that's spirituality. And um, how does that work? And why is that so important, the spiritual aspect or the spirituality of recovery? What's that about? Oh, there's, there's so many aspects of that. Um, there's one treatment center um, that I used to work with that actually said in their mission statement, basically, that unapologetically, we put out there that spirituality is the ultimate goal of recovery. Mm-hmm. That in order to recover, that component is required. Now, we're not talking about religion. We're talking about spirituality. Um, even the Alcoholics Anonymous book define spirituality as a personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism. It's looking at the world in a different way. Um, Mindfulness is a key part of that. Um, Being aware of who I am realistically, not with the contrivances of the abuse or the uh, detrimental negative self-talk, to get rid of all that and to have a realistic perspective of myself we're all beautiful people who have the potential to do whatever we like. And so much of that gets lost, but it's found within a spiritual connection. And I know that I myself could not achieve what I've achieved in my life without my higher power. And I see so many people um, every day in this business and out there in the world who have overcome obstacles that seemed insurmountable because they were able to rely on something greater than themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's key. Where it, again, it goes back to the connection. We're not alone. Right. What are some of the ways, and I know there's as many ways probably as there are people, but what are some of the ways that uh, in the treatment program that you uh, all support people in making that spiritual connection where are people when they come in treatment uh with in terms of their spirituality and what do you do to help them well there's several different ways again um here at austin recovery we have um spirituality groups um we have um yoga we have um minister that comes in and does both individual and groups with people but um in treatment centers around the country what i've seen is that each individual has to come to an understanding of what their spiritual beliefs had been up to this point and what might be blocking them. Um, I worked with one guy who could not take a third step, which had to do with turning his will and his life over. Um, Because in his mind, um, he had been raised Catholic, and in order to turn his will and his life over to the care of a higher power, meant being celibate for the rest of his life, and he wasn't willing to make that commitment Mm -hmm. because that's what he had seen the priests and the nuns do. And when you reframe that so that spirituality is not a little box, but it can be anything that you can draw strength from outside yourself, even the group of people 
in the 12-step program that are sober, people who are doing things that you've been unable to do up to this point, drawing strength from that can be a spiritual experience in and of itself. Right. Um, there's lots of different books out there. Um, one of my favorite authors, Anthony DeMello, wrote a book called um, The Song of the Bird. Mm-hmm. And in this book, um, Anthony DeMello was a Catholic priest who decided that was not the only way to spirituality. And he gathered stories of finding spirituality from other religions and put them into this book. It's a series of parables and, and little stories about finding your way. Um, my favorite story in there um, was called The Devil and His Friend. And it goes, and it's not that long a story. Um, the devil once went for a walk with a friend. They saw a man ahead of them stoop down and pick up something from the ground. The friend said, what did he find? And the devil said, he found a piece of the truth. The friend asked, doesn't that bother you? And the devil's response was, no, I'll let him make a belief out of it. Jeez. And Anthony DeMello adds to that that when you think you've found the truth, it prevents you from moving towards the actual truth. The truth mm-hmm. is a piece like that is just a signpost pointing your way. Mm-hmm. Um, we always educate people that this is a beginning, that their spiritual growth has to continue the rest of their lives. Lifelong learning is essential. Right. It, and um, it's, it's sort of like that uh, if you stop that spiritual growth or if you kind of pull up a rock and sit on it and say this is the end of it, uh, you're putting yourself at risk, I think, aren't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. The world changes every day. And if we don't learn to change with it, we're going to get left behind. Mm-hmm. Not to mention that, you know, you can't just rely on your higher power alone. It takes footwork as well. I mean, right. Go ahead. We have to get up and do the work. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. What kind of footwork do you mean? What kind of footwork goes along with spirituality? Um, one of the keys in recovery is helping others. Um you know, reaching out and giving back to the community in ways that you received help. Um, you know, that 12-step work, as they say. Um, so we encourage people to volunteer. Um, there is in Austin um, a church under the bridge, and I've taken clients to that church, and they'll volunteer and, and hand out coffee to homeless people who come to this church service. And um helping other people newer in recovery um, get acclimated to being in treatment or just to this is how a meeting works. Um, But it can be in any arena, um, volunteering time at the food bank or um, just telling your story to somebody who's in a similar situation who didn't think there was hope and they see you in recovery, so they have a chance to say, well, maybe this is possible for me. Right. You know, I can really see how those kind of things help in, uh, build a, a sense of self-worth because maybe one reason people don't, don't do those kind of things or not a service because they don't, they don't know that they've got a great story to share or they, you know, they don't realize that anybody's recovery story is a miracle. It's amazing and it helps somebody. Mm-hmm. Being aware of those opportunities is, is part of mindfulness, obviously. And there's a lot of information out now, a lot of research about mindfulness as a relapse prevention technique for addiction, but also for depression and other mental health problems. That being aware of what triggers us, being aware of how we react to our environment, um, can strengthen us to deal with those things more effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, One friend of mine who drives for Uber um, sees that as a way to make amends on a daily basis because when she was drinking, she drove drunk. And now driving for Uber, especially on a Friday or Saturday night, she gets to help people get home safely. The roads are safer. Those people don't drive. They're not in as much danger, and she's helping her community. Mm-hmm. So even with um, an opportunity like that that doesn't seem directly related to recovery is definitely something that can make amends and help our community prosper. Mm-hmm. 
so as you say, it's like that that root idea of mindfulness is is seeing things in perspective or seeing them from that place of how may I be of service and many many of the things that we do can be of service and and if we if we see it that way and have an understanding of ourselves yes there's um so much of of drug use is about numbing out and becoming you know, oblivious to the pain and to the suffering. And when we do that, we separate ourselves from human contact. Um, one simple intervention is just to make eye contact with people and connect and acknowledge that, you know, as, as they say, namaste, you know, the spirit in me recognizes the spirit in you. If you can do that with homeless people, with friends, with people at work, and not just go through the routines from day to day, but actually be aware of what we do and who we connect with, there's so much more that we can live. I mean, our our life can be so much richer. Mm -hmm. There's an old movie, well, it's 1980s, mid-80s, called uh, My Dinner with Andre. And one of the characters is talking about going to Findhorn in Sweden and going to the desert and following this little prince thing and, and doing all these things to try and find himself. And his friend is saying, well, wait a minute. Um, Isn't there just as much reality in the cigar shop on the corner as there was in Findhorn? If we open ourselves to that reality that's in front of us, couldn't we do just as much good, you know, talking with somebody on the street corner as we could, you know, going off um, to another country and helping out? Right. That's wonderful. That's powerful. That's the ultimate connection is to be where you are and notice that you're there and that you're part of what's going on. Absolutely. And to, and to realize that you are worthy, that each person has something to contribute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Our time is up. David, I want to thank you so much for being my guest. My guest is David Halk. He is a licensed master social worker, a licensed chemical dependency counselor, and the director of programs at Austin Recovery. And um, he has a wealth of experience and uh, knows a lot about connections. So, David, thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And listeners, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for connecting here with Spirit of Recovery. And have a blessed week and uh, where you are knowing that you are worthy, that you are part of, that you belong. So we'll be back next week on Spirit of Recovery. God bless. Thank you for listening to Spirit of Recovery with Rev. Anna Schaus, Ph.D., and her guests. Join Anna and her guests live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central Time for down-to-earth ideas about keeping spirituality at the heart of your recovery. This program is brought to you in part by Soul Matters Ministry, committed to bringing light to the soul. Online at soulmatters-spiritworks.org. is full of voices, advertising, television, politics, colleagues, family, and friends. All are too happy to tell us how to live. In all of that noise, it's easy to miss the one voice that matters, your own soul. What would happen if you could hear that voice? Imagine the clarity, confidence, and courage that would be yours and the life you could create. Join Janet Connor, best-selling author of Writing Down Your Soul, the Lotus and the Lily, and Your Soul Wants Five Things, as she and her guests explore how to hear the call of the soul and create the soul-directed life. Live Thursday at 1 p.m. Central, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Go inside to find Philosopher Plato said, The unexamined life is not worth living. In a world where it is paramount that we earn a living and provide for those who depend upon us, there seems to be little or no time for self-evaluation. 
survival receives all our attention. Yet, when you pause and take a look at the little things in your daily experience, a richer you will be discovered. In knowing yourself, you develop a better understanding of others. In unity, we support the spiritual idea of knowing thyself. It's how we can all bring a healing, compassionate attitude to an ever-changing world. This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.